Hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, March 8th. Taylor Padgett's birthday. Happy birthday, son. Uh, on this uh, this Wednesday, which uh, makes it a uh, faith day around here on the Common Good Podcast. And we're going to be talking about one of the great uh, conflicts inside of the Christian faith in North America, and that is Christian nationalism. In fact, uh, this whole month at Vote Common Good, we're putting an emphasis on Christian nationalism. We like to call it March on Christian Nationalism, which we hope is uh, sort of a you know double entendre, as they say, that it is both uh, us marching on it and uh, spending the month of March on this on this topic, doing a number of things. I was at a little meeting uh, with organizers that's still being kept under wraps, but anyway, a lot of organizing going on around uh, Christian nationalism. A big report coming out soon about that. We're have launched our own podcast, especially uh, focused on a training on the threat of Christian nationalism, produced by Common Good Media, run by one Daniel Dietrich. Hey, Dan. Uh-huh. And uh, going to be uh, helping to lead a convening, Vote Common Good is, in Oxford, England at the end of the month, and then another gathering in Washington, D.C. So a whole lot happening, trying to provide you with an insight into what's going on. Today's particularly important. We want to spend one whole podcast section here on this new iteration of Christian nationalism. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say this. Christian nationalism has been an approach to the United, in the United States for a long while, from its very founding. There were people arguing when the set of colonies were going to join together to be a union, that that union of states should have a preference for Christianity. So it's been there from the founding. The Organizers and founders had great debate about this and concluded, no, it would not have a religious mandate. No, it would not have a gathering of only Christians in significant places of leadership. And instead, as was articulated in uh, the amendments to the Constitution, the government shall not establish any religion. Okay, so Mm -hmm. it's been an argument from the beginning that's had uh, decisions made about it. That doesn't mean that everybody's agreed with those decisions. And so Christian nationalism has continued to be an argument made by people for 250, 60 years in this country. And there have been many expressions of it. So Christian nationalism is sort of this core software that people develop a lot of uh, many different applications to run on top of, or it's a, it's a, a base part of a meal. It's the, it's the staple, it's the rice or the potatoes. And on that, you can mix in all kinds of other uh, tastes and flavors. So there's many expressions to Christian nationalism. It has been. There's one in particular we're going to talk about today. It's called the Seven Mountains Mandate. It's the newest and most powerful expression of Christian nationalism to most people who hold to Christian nationalist beliefs in our society today. So we're going to spend a little bit of time around that particular notion and particular um, concept. If you're listening already to the uh, Confronting Christian Nationalism podcast, which we hope you are, it's a separate uh, feed. You should search for it in the places where you look for these things on podcasts and search under Confronting Christian Nationalism. You'll see it. They're half an hour long segments that have been uh, taken the training, live trainings that we've done and have been distilled down into the you know, short bites so you can sort of take it in a half an hour at a time in a podcast format. 
And if you've been paying attention to that, you will know that in that world, we've been talking about what is it that makes Christian nationalism attractive to people? And one of those is the belief that the country was started as a Christian nation and we should return to it. That's a big notion. We talk about that in the first and second episodes. That a lot of people confuse the word church with people and therefore when they hear Christian nationalism, they mean it should be a country where people can be Christian. You hear that a lot. There's a lot of confusion about that, especially in the subset of our fellow Christians who believe that Christians are more persecuted than any other group in the country. If you hear someone saying something like, well, you know who else is, is uh, discriminated against? It's not just people of color. It's not just indigenous peoples. It's not just people of different orientations. It's Christians. They're right. the most persecuted group of people. I mean, I've been in a couple of <laughs> conversations this week about that. It is, Dan, as you uh, articulately said there, laughable. <laughs> um, it's, it's clearly not true, but that's yeah. a notion, right? That the government stands against Christianity and has all these plots and schemes and cabals of people that are trying to get rid of Christianity. That's been going on also from the, from the founding of the, from the founding of the country. There's a third notion, and that is that a lot of people see the United States as the new Israel. It plays into this one we're going to talk about today, that somehow the United States is this active, uh, project of the new of the new Israel. The third is this holy war narrative that really we have a battle against spiritual principalities and powers, and we're taking it to the uh, the the forces that want of darkness that want to overcome the forces of light. And the United States is the place where that battle is being raged, and the government is one of those places. This is what you hear from Michael Flynn. This is what you hear from Steve Bannon. This is what you hear from a lot of uh, uh, charismatic and Pentecostal church leaders and conservatives. Holy war narrative. So that's four. And then there's a fifth. That's one we're going to talk about today. That's the seven mountains mandate and that the United States is a unique character in God's plan for the world. And that's the that's the basis of this uh, Seven Mountains uh, mandate theory. So, so we're going to talk just about that one today. Uh, next week, we're going to have uh, some conversations about some of the older roots of this from the 1930s, uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s in the United States. And uh, hold on for this one, how that expression of Christian nationalism is the framework and almost the identical arguments made by the MAGA movement today. So that uh, that's that's coming next week. We'll I'll tell you more about yeah, that. Yeah, pretty um, stunning, um, just the parallels between the two. The same language, the same framework. It'll be good to get into that. Yeah, I mean, pre precisely from, you know, <laughs> the arguments about uh, taxation to the arguments about immigration, the conversation about uh, debt, the conversation about communists, yeah. globalists, all of it. It's just a, it's a near identical repeat of movements of the 19. Uh, 30s and uh, 1940s and and ongoing. They've never stopped. They were they were deeply articulated. So that was a real movement that got its start in the 1920s and 30s as a resistance to the New Deal. This new one, the one we're talking about now, it roots itself at the later part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century. So somewhere between 1975 and 2015 was born a new movement of Christian nationalism, a new expression of Christian nationalism. I like to use the metaphor of a new variant of a virus. The virus of Christian nationalism has a new variant, and that new variant is uh, built around this notion of the seven mountains mandate. Now, that that whole business about the, the seven mountains ma mandate, um, 
the, the imagery here is that in the New Testament, there's a book called the Book of Revelation. And the Book of Revelation, there's this statement in there about how there's these seven mountains and seven heads. And the people who've originated this notion and idea, this worldview of how God works in the world and what's the role of the United States, Christians in the United States with Christians around the world, how that's uh, being... Um, uh, 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 th this worldview that's being articulated is using this metaphor, I think it's a metaphor, it's hard to know with these folks sometimes, of there being seven mountains. And what they mean by this are seven areas of influence. That the seven areas of influence of where God's going to do God's work is in the areas of arts and entertainment, business, education, the family, government, media, and religion. And in those seven areas, this is where God's going to put, now here's what's important about all of this. God's going to put specific leaders in place in all of these areas, arts, entertainment, whether it's a business leader, educational leader, family, government, media, and religion. And those people are going to be used specially by God to initiate a, an expression of God's desire for the world. All right, so, so Dan, here, here's the thing that's hard for me about this. I, so many people that we both know, and a lot of the listeners and viewers of this uh, live stream podcast know, believe in this theory. They, don't, they may not even know they believe in this theory, right? It might not even be something they've, uh, they've, they've heard articulated as clearly as the people who hold this view uh, want to articulate. I mean, they've written books about it. They have whole conferences about it. They've organized around the world for this outcome. And they've done a, a rather remarkable job of convincing people of some base ideas around the seven mountains mandate. That is, that is the way that Christian nationalism is expressed in the United States. And for all purposes, people who hear it and are adherents to it think this is a good thing. They're like, well, of course, Christians should have influence right. in the world. Of course, we should have influence in arts and media and business. Like... And it's kind of true, right? Like, look, Christian people, Jewish people, non-religious people, people of every tradition should be participating in every area of life. For sure. That's what we should all be doing. That's not what these folks mean. What these folks mean is that in order to have power to accomplish God's desires for the world, the, the ultimate leaders in these areas need to be doing God's work. Yep. And here's the thing. We'll bring this up a couple of times. They don't need to be particularly adherents to the very Christianity that they are leading right. in these areas of influence. In fact, if you're not an adherent to Christianity or you're new to it, then that's even a greater sign that this is God's hand on this work. Yeah. <laughs> so when people like us critique, whether it's Donald Trump in government, or we critique people in the media, or we could critique people's views of the family and say things like, you're advocating a view of the family that you don't even personally live. We think that shows a weakness in your argument and hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. People who hold to the seven, mandate, seven mountains mandate say, glory be to God. God can use all kinds of instruments, right? right? It, it's what's called key leader um, theory that you don't have leaders that are necessarily the best at the faith, but are the most powerful at purporting the faith, pushing right. the faith through the system. 
right? So you could say things like these people that are advocating for the family and for the the way it gets played out is for the traditional family. You're like, really, Steve Bannon? Really, Newt Gingrich? Really, Donald <laughs> Trump? Yeah. You all are going to be making this argument, which they do readily. And their own lives have, are full of divorces and cheating on their on their spouses and and all manner of things that that the theory rails against, but they are um, the Apostle Paul in that story, right? The one who right. was uh, blind, but now they see and, and, and like this, right? Yeah, it's like a get-out-of-hypocrisy-free card. It's like, well, of course he's bad at all these things, but God is using him. He's he's He, and often it's he, but not only. In this world, there's a lot of women leaders. There's a lot of charismatic Pentecostal women preachers and prophets. Um, he or she are God's chosen people to accomplish this purpose. All right, mm -hmm. so let's step back for a minute to give a framework for how this makes sense. Here's why it makes sense. It's the belief that the United States of America is unique in the history of the world. It only has one counterpart in its uniqueness, and that is the nation of Israel and the yeah. people of Israel. Here's how the belief goes. And I have a, a good friend who holds to this belief and he helped articulate this to me because I wanted to double check with him to make sure I was getting this right. The way they say it is, there's only two nations that have ever been born out of the dream of God rather than out of the other ways that nations come about, splits and wars and so on. And that was the nation of Israel called into being by the very blessing of God. And you see that in the, in the Jewish scriptures and the United States of America. Okay, so their argument is that the United States is unique. When you hear people making an argument about American exceptionalism, this is what the new breed of Christian nationalists who hold the Seven Mountains movement theory believe. When they say exceptionalism, they're not saying we have the greatest natural resources inside of the boundaries of the United States, which happens to be true. We have the best governmental system that one could have. We have the best economic system. It's, it's exceptional above all the others, or capitalism is the, you know, the worst possible system, but better than all the rest, or you know, the worst system, but better than all the rest. <laughs> They're not making that argument. They're not making that argument at all. They're saying it's exceptional because of God's intention for the United States. Reagan's were a city on a hill kind of arguments was early Seven Mountains theory uh, um, uh, framing. So this is what they're getting after, that the United States is unique. It's the younger big brother to the nation of Israel. So God's intention for the world comes through the nation of Israel and through the United States. So they're not, what they're not arguing, this new breed, and I don't mean that they disagree with this, but it's just not the argument they're making. And a lot of people who you talk to uh, won't be making these arguments either. The United States should have uh, the federal government institute, you know, Christianity as the demand on everyone, or only Christians should get to be elected to office, or only Christians should be the people who, you know, have power in the country. That's not this group's argument. This group's argument is God has a particular agenda for the world that's going to come through the United States. And we're going to see that agenda playing out through these seven areas of influence, art and entertainment, media, religion, education, family, government, and, and, uh, and the like. So these seven areas are the, are the areas that the United States and the rest of the world then will be drawn in to God's 
agenda for the earth. The thing that is so um, appealing to people about the Seven Mountains Mandate, the reason it has it has such prevalence in so many churches and in so many groups of Christian people is because what it's fundamentally doing is recasting the role of the United States, not in political terms of how the government functions in the United States, but into a grand narrative that says the United States plays a role in God's agenda for the earth for all people everywhere. Mm -hmm. So when people start arguing about, well, Thomas Jefferson said we should have a separation of church and state, or we should make sure that we remove these books from the, these folks are like, look, you're playing, you're playing small ball here. What yeah. God is really up to is a great grand influence of God's agenda for the world. Now, side note here, that agenda for the world is not an agenda of for God so loved the world that he gave. It's for God so loved the world that he put us in power. It's not go into all of the world and make disciples. It's go into all of the disciples and make a nation. It's a perversion or a twisting often of what you would hear and see in Christian teaching. It's not humble yourself. It's exalt the leaders. Mm -hmm. So th there's an agenda in all of this that wants to put some people in power and disempower other people. And so the people who live sinful lives are therefore resisting working against God's agenda for the world. So in the seven areas of influence, those folks need to be replaced or needs, need, need to be um, uh, thwarted so that the agenda of God can come about. But, but the, the vision is bigger than just the United States government. This is how Christian nationalists will say, and I hear it all the time from them, like, you people that are all worried about politics, like we're not worried about politics. We're worried about the role of the government and how we have the Christian leaders in the government so that we can accomplish something more grand and more great. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that world, it really says to you, don't just fight about an election. Don't fight about a piece of policy. Don't fight about uh, the, the inner workings of the government. There's a bigger story. And it just so happens that we have to run the government, but we also have to run a lot of other things, not just the government in order for all of this, for all this to work. So yeah. that's the base theory of Seven Mountainsism. Now, I, what we'll do today is we'll spend a little time talking about how that plays out in the government, and hopefully this will become helpful for people to see why and how it is these Christian nationalists who hold the Seven Mountains movement theory can continue to support someone like Donald Trump. It, you, you'll see examples of it. You'll hear people saying it um, from themselves, you're saying from themselves, uh, saying it themselves <laughs> and and how, they're, uh, how this is going to play out. Yeah, do you want to jump into the anointed video? Speaking of, uh, yeah, that, let's or? let's let, let's do that. So, so this uh, is is this the one from the uh, from the Michael Flynn event? Yeah, the Big Tent revival. The Big Tent. Yeah. Okay. So, so this video is one that I shot. I shot when I attended one of the um, Michael Flynn led revival events that's built around Seven Mountains theory that's traveling around the country, and it's the anti COVID, anti government. Um, Seven Mountains movement uh, uh, conference that's that's happening and is recruiting you know people by the hundreds and thousands around the country into into this movement. So I attended one of those. And what you're going to hear is one of the one of the speakers. But in this world, they're often referred to as prophets, and this person's one of the prophets. And prophets are people who 
tell you about what God's agenda is for the world. By the way, in, in biblical frame and in current vernacular, the word prophet is not used as fortune teller or future teller, right? Sometimes people think of a prophet as someone who's describing what's going to happen in the future. The way prophet is used both in biblical framing and in this framing of these folks, prophets are people who are describing what God is currently doing in the world and how we ought to act now and in the immediate future. They're not saying what's going to happen. They're telling you what ought to happen. So that's the way prophet gets utilized in this world. And it's an important subset of all of this. So if you think about the uh, you know, what Christians call the Old Testament or what Jews call the Bible, what, 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 what the biblical, Jewish biblical frame is that you have kings, you have priests, and you have prophets. So what these folks are often doing is utilizing that same framework. They're the prophets, religious leaders are priests, and the kings are our governmental leaders. That's why they always refer to Trump as, you know, he's like King Cyrus. You're going to see right. a, a little, little clip about that, right? So it's borrowing those phrases and saying, no matter what we're doing in the United States with our governmental system, we don't have kings, we have presidents and so on that are elected by the people. But in God's mind, you have priests, prophets, and kings. So this is how God sees the world. So what you're going to hear in this video when I walked into this tent, and sorry, the audio is a little tough. I wasn't sure I was going to hear such gold right away. I would have had my better microphone on. <laughs> but the person on the stage is describing what the, what the seven mandates view should be of selecting a president. And you'll, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear it here. Walking into the... Because all the Christians, if you ever talk to Christians during an election cycle, here's what they care about. Is he a Christian? Is he a Christian? They want to know if their candidate's a Christian. Is he a Christian? Let me tell you, one of the worst presidents we ever had was Jimmy Carter, and he was a Christian. <laughs> the question you should be asking isn't, is he a Christian? You should ask, is he anointed and chosen by God for the job? <laughs> and people say, well, what about Donald Trump? Is he a Christian? Yes, he's a Christian. My dad became a Christian. My dad became a Christian. I made him say the sinner's prayer five times. <laughs> Donald Trump, I promise you, has said it three times. The last time I made my dad say it, I said, Dad, did you mean it? And this World War II veteran attorney from New York said, Damn it, I wouldn't have prayed it if I didn't mean it. <laughs> Go figure. The Lord said that's good enough. Now you're not getting a choir boy. But I'm telling you something prophetically. As I sat there, that anointing that was on Kim came upon me and I was shook up. So here's the thing. A lot of times these Christian nationalist preachers talk about a prophetic voice. That's a really important bit. Maybe it's hard to put all together, but he's saying that because he has a prophetic calling, prophetic voice, he will know how to determine if someone is chosen by God or not. And that's the thing, that when these Christian nationalists say we should only have leaders that are anointed by God, they typically mean their God, of course, and their understanding of God. So what they're doing is saying that the God of the universe has put someone who believes and thinks the way they do into a position of power, and therefore you can't argue against it. That's the heart of the Christian nationalist prophetic narrative. 
Okay, so I was, you know, I'm realizing I'm literally wearing the same shirt and hat that I wore in that video. That just shows the fact that my wardrobe <laughs> I mean, wardrobe if you didn't is, have the hat, I would be is, Well, well that, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, the hat's a punctuation point, but I'm literally wearing the same shirt. I need to expand my wardrobe. All right, here's the thing. That, that guy's argument there, is Trump a Christian? Is a president? That, that's not what's important. I mean, just pray whatever prayer. Who cares? That's not the point. The point is, is this person anointed by God for the job? So you can see what the seven mountains theory is saying. Not did this leader choose God? Not important. Did God choose this leader? Yeah. Now, this is what's essential to understand when you say like, and we've all said it, I'm guessing if you listen to this podcast, you probably said it, you said it to your friends, you've said it out loud to the people that agree with you, you've said it to people maybe even who disagree with you, you probably shouted it at your television or your computer screen or your phone. How in the world can these people stand behind someone whose actions are so contrary to the things that we believe as Christians? Well, it's not the point. And so what they're doing is traveling the country and saying, it's not the point. The point is not, does this person choose God? Does this person choose the way of God on a daily basis? Does this person do what's right? No, the question is, are they anointed by God? Well, how do we know? Not by their fruits will we know them, to borrow a biblical <laughs> phrase, it is by the prophets we will be reassured. Yeah. This the person ends is. justify the means. And Randy Woodley has this great comment from Facebook. Thanks for being on, Randy. He says, right on, American exceptionalism is just another face of manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery. Those colonizing movements are based on utopian vision that almost always justifies the means by the end. Genocide, enslavement, Jim Crow, reservations, boarding schools, anti-Chinese immigration act, redlining, southern border, Trumpism, Christian nationalism, etc. All part of the structured and sanctioned utopian vision, all anti-Christ. So well said. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. And by, by the way, we've done a couple of conversations in the podcast stream with, with Randy, and they're exceptional. So you should find those and listen to him and find Randy's stuff. It's really great. Randy, that is so, um, so important. That's what's going on. And the unifying theory of all of this is the Seven Mountains mandate. So the same thing then happens in business. The same thing happens in education. The same thing will happen in uh, art and entertainment, it's across the board. This same approach, find these key leaders and then they're going to be the one to initiate God's actions in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, because I know our podcasts go along, you know, 40 minutes and almost an hour sometimes. Um, I want to say this at this point. If you don't understand that people in this world truly believe that Donald Trump was selected by God for this role... If you don't understand that or take that seriously from their vantage point, then you might have a hard time understanding how they could want to lie about the outcome of the 2020 election and fuel and fund an insurrection. Here's why. If you believe that God chose this leader and the way God manifests God's behavior in the world, God's desires in the world is through human behavior, and we use elections in this country, then Donald Trump had to have been elected president, right? Because 
that was God's intention for the world and God's intention was fulfilled in 2016, they believe was continuing to be fulfilled in 2020. So if someone then says to you, no, 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 Donald Trump did not win the election, what you then hear is someone lied about the election results. In other <laughs> words, God did have his candidate who truly won, but people didn't thwart God's, God's vision for the world and plan through Donald Trump by having 84 million people say no to Donald Trump. The way Donald Trump was not reinstated as president was by people cheating. In other Which words, is still you can funny cheat to me the that, agenda of God. Yeah, you can cheat the agenda of God. You, God is apparently pulling the levers of elections, but he can't be bothered to stop the cheaters. So, well, it's okay, a little yeah. confusing. So, this the is a really important logic. point, Dan, that you're bringing up because <laughs> some people's view of dominionism or God's dominion in the world, God's actions in the world, for some people, it's thought about in a predetermined and nearly mecha mechanistic way. For other people and the people in the Seven Mountains movement and a lot of other folks who aren't in this movement, there's another Christianity movements or they're not in Christianity at all, are like, no, 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 here, God's not forcing an outcome. God is moving and working within the system to bring it about. God's one of the actors in the system. God's not outside the system. Which is why God system. needs our help. He needs all these kings and all the different seven mountains. And That's it. Yeah. That's it. Fundamentally, and I actually hold to that view. When I talk about God's action in the world, I'm like, God invites humanity and all of all of creation to be co-participants, co-creators in the world that we have. Mm -hmm. It ain't just going to happen. So, I mean, that's my own view of God. Now, these folks have overlaid another theory of what God's up to, which is the seven mountains thing, as God's primary action in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, look, this, this started somewhere around 1975. A group of leaders, one who I knew personally, a guy named Bill Bright and a number of others, articulated this vision of Seven Mountains early on. But then somewhere in the early 2000s, other people started picking up. And in 2013, a particular prophetic voice wrote a book about all this and started organizing around it in response to the election, the re-election of Barack Obama. And that's then when Donald Trump was being recruited by Pat Robertson and other Seven Mountains leaders to say, Donald Trump is our guy to move from one area of influence, arts and entertainment, and the area of business into the area of government to be God's grand leader in that place. Right. So these people talk very specifically in 2010, 2012, 2013. Then they launched this whole Seven Mountains mandate. So somewhere between 1975 and 2013, 14, 15 was the clearing, uh, the, the, the clarity and articulation of the Seven Mountains effort and movement. So it's that new. But when people hear it, it sounds like it's old ancient truth, partly the way they pitch it. And, and people have just been thinking about the bits and pieces of all of this for a long time. Like there's been this national prayer breakfast that goes on uh, in Washington, D.C. that presidents mm -hmm. of all parties, people of all political parties go to. That group that runs that thing, full on Seven Mountains mandate people. In yep. fact, that's what they're doing in their current iteration. They are trying to recruit leaders from all around the world because what starts in the United States and Israel, then spreads to the rest of the world, and they're trying to export 
this same notion into all governments, into all media, into all education, all the way around the world. This is why they're always fighting on seven fronts at the same time, because all the areas matter and they're doing it uh, all around the world at the same time. Yeah, it's 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 troubling and it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a and lot. And it's funny because I don't know, do you remember this book uh the what would Jesus do book and it's uh-huh. you know it spawned the bracelets and and all that. And in the book there's like a businessman and yeah. the whole idea is that instead of just going by, you know, best practices make the most money, he would consider what would Jesus do in any given situation. And that might mean losing influence, losing profits to do the right thing. And this is just the opposite. It's do whatever you can to get the most power and influence so that eventually you can do the right thing for the, I I still, it's, (laughs) it's hard to wrap my head around. It's hard to, and so when you hear people saying things like folks in the world that I want to listen to say things like, the biblical narrative tells you that God has preferential care for the poor. These folks are like, no, that is preferential, <laughs> right? Like poverty is a problem we should solve, not a not not an area we should try to find leaders, you know. And and yeah. so it's all built around a, another view of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's called dominionism, that the areas of God's dominion are significant and important. You know what I also realized uh, just just uh, yesterday in, in getting ready for this conversation? When, when I was in junior high, um, we learned that the longest non-scientific word word in the English language. Do, do, you, do you remember this at all? Do you, do you have any, any recollection of, of this kind of thing? In your in your world, maybe somebody in the chat can guess it before I say it. What do you think the or what what was said back in the seventies and eighties was the longest the longest uh, non scientific word in the world? And the reason I say that is because sometimes some scientific words are very complex mashups of Latin and so on, so that you know they can get to be super long. I think it's twenty eight letters or something. Though this word, so maybe it's not that long, but it's a long one. Uh, Say it out loud if you know it already, folks, if you want. There it is. Laura's got it. Uh Anti-disestablishmentarianism. Do you remember this word at all, Dan? (laughs) Josh has got Uh, it. Uh, Yabitz has got it. Okay. So we all know anti-disestablishmentarianism. Do you know what that means? I didn't until yesterday. (laughs) Okay. Well, I guess if you wanted to break down what anti-disestablishmentarianism is double negative of a word right like yeah totally it is so yeah you start you start going after it right and you say okay what is establishment anti yes what is establishment and then what is disestablishment so what's being established and what's being disestablished it's actually a word from the english system of government and church the disestablishment movement was to disestablish or to separate church from government in England, Ireland, and Wales. To separate because there was an official church. The Anglican Church is the official church of England. It's literally called. I mean, the United States we call it Episcopalian as a as a brand name. It's called Anglicanism. It's also called the Church of England, right? So the disestablishment movement was to separate, segregate, disestablish government from religion, to not have an official religion anymore. So the disestablishment movement 
was to accomplish that. So the anti-disestablishment movement was to not separate <laughs> religion from government. So in the United States, there's an anti-disestablishment movement to say that government should be in existence to fulfill the purposes of God, mm -hmm. church work. So just, just like a fun little anecdote that the longest word to just make all of this more complicated, I mean, I bring that up because <laughs> you had said that things are so complicated, to make it more complicated, the longest word in, you know, at least in lore of in the English language, anti-disestablishmentarianism is a movement that wants to reestablish the role of religion and government as a singular unit working together hand in hand. In other words, Seven Mountains people would love themselves some anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I, I find that just so utterly pleasant. Uh, I, I, I was, I was just, just giggling with joy on, on, on discovering, on discovering that. All right. So, how so we does got this a couple more out? videos. Maybe we do. We want to hit a couple of these videos and then talk about you know how it plays out in the world and why it's really problematic. Like why? I, I think that I think that's a great <laughs> idea. All right. So, so, so one of these videos, the first one we'll show you here is um, Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo in this video is the video is something that happened in uh, put up uh, aired on the Christian Broadcasting Network. Mike Pompeo uh, was the Secretary of State at this time, and he's in Israel. This big agenda for the, for the Trump administration is the connection between the United States and Israel and moving the U.S. Uh, the uh, embassy, yeah. embassy to Jerusalem was a big deal because what it was doing was cementing the relationship, not the political, not the geopolitical relationship, but the spiritual relationship between the call of Israel into existence and the call of the United States. And Jerusalem is the only place where the spiritual narrative could make their connection. So that's why all of this move of the embassy there. So Mike Pompeo, a soon to be announced candidate for president uh, in 2024, uh, was the secretary of state. And this is an interview that he does. And what you're going to hear him say is he thinks it's quite likely that Donald Trump was selected by God to be the leader of the world. And how it's almost always framed is in references to the biblical narrative of Queen Esther. Trump is all, always these characters from the Jewish text, Christians call the Old Testament, are, are invoked to explain Trump, right? King Cyrus, this wicked king who mm -hmm. accomplished God's purposes. Or Queen Esther, who was brought into power for such a time as such this. Such a time as this. Such a time as this theory, or such a time as such a time as this ism is the fundamental basis for explaining for a lot of Christian nationalists why Donald Trump makes sense. And you'll hear Mike, Mike Pompeo say it, say it right now. Walking firmly through the door, Mike Pompeo is a determined man. Both our Jerusalem Bureau Chief Chris Mitchell and I had the opportunity to interview the Secretary of State. It was part politics, part policy, and part spiritual, especially for a strong Christian who experienced a refreshing in the Holy Land. Could it be that, that President Trump right now has been sort of raised for such a time as this, just like Queen Esther, to help save the Jewish people from an Iranian menace? As a Christian, I, I certainly believe that's possible. Uh, it was remarkable. So we were down in the tunnels where we could see uh, 3,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago, if I have the history just right, uh, uh, to see the remarkable history of the faith 
in this place uh, and the work that our administration has done to make sure that uh, this democracy in the Middle East of this Jewish state remains, um, I'm confident that the Lord is at work here. All right, so there it is, the sitting Secretary of the United States when asked, do you think the explanation for Donald Trump being elected president was a Queen Esther story? <laughs> and he says, well, as a Christian, I certainly think that's possible. Well, you know what? You're not being asked as a Christian. You're not in Sunday school, fella. You're the seated, sit, literally sitting Secretary of State speaking on behalf of the federal government. Your answer should be, Donald Trump was elected by the people of the United States. That's the story. Mm -hmm. And he's accountable. But instead, what he shifts into is, oh, then I've seen the, the history of the great faith here and our administration is involved in all of this. And what he's doing on the Christian Broadcasting Network is saying to people, the seven mountains mandate of selected leaders to give leadership over certain areas, that's our guy. Yeah. Not, not a hesitation in the world. Now, look, as a pastor and as a podcast host and as an organizer, I want to go around to churches and help churches think well about things. It's important. Churches are places of influence. We should think well. But if a church gets it wrong, okay, get it right somewhere else or go up the street to another church or churches have very limited influence. So do writers and all the rest. The government, <laughs> on the other hand, the reason we worry about the government in our society is because we choose as a society to invest in the government great power authoritarian power when they need to use it. So what a government official says is different than what Mike Pompeo in a Sunday school says. Mm -hmm. If Mike's not a, if he's not a the secretary of state on an official government visit in that role, what he says, I'm not going to argue with him. I mean, I might disagree with him. And if we want to go out and chat about it, I'd be glad to. If he wants to come on the podcast as a candidate, we'd love to talk to him about it. But when you're in that role, that's something different. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think we have to note on Christian nationalism. The threat of Christian nationalism is just an idea floating in the world and people getting it wrong and arguing with prophets inside of tents. That's something we should be working on. We, we blow every warning horn we have when someone has governmental power yeah. and is making these statements. It raises it to an entirely different level. And that's the threat with the Trump administration. He opened the door to all of these people with all of these ideas and metaphorically and maybe literally baptized the, the, the ideas of his administration inside of these ideas and put these ideas mm -hmm. inside the administration. And I think we should call for a little disestablishmentarianism rather than these anti-disestablishmentarianism characters like Mike Pompeo. Yeah. So we should start a movement where we just say, Mike, are you, are you an anti-disestablishmentarianist? <laughs> you know, that would really carry. That's a, that's a long t-shirt. Uh, that's, yeah. a, that's a solid hashtag. It probably takes up the entire tweet. But along um, the way, you know, in achieving like this, this move of the embassy to Jerusalem and, you know, achieving some of these goals of, quote, God, it steamrolls a path for a whole bunch of atrocious behavior and policy. Like this isn't, like you said, just people talking in a tent. These are the people that are putting in place policies that you know, locked kids in cages, that banned people from entering our country, just a number of terrible policies that harmed actual people that especially Christians are called to care for and love and look after. So just uh, it yeah, excuses you, so much bad behavior. And on a Faith Wednesday, we can talk about this. The book of Esther story is about, the point of it is, 
Why do we celebrate Purim this holiday on two different dates? Why are there two dates that we celebrate this Jewish holiday of Purim? What's what's that about? So they tell the story. Well, here's how it all came about. See, there's a guy named Boaz and this person named Esther, and then Esther becomes the queen, and Boaz has to say to her, maybe you become a queen for such a time as this to save the Jews. What does she order? She orders a warlike genocide against the people who are opposed to the nation of Israel. And she doesn't do it on just one day. She does it on two. So both days are seen as the time when you celebrate this use of power. It's reminiscent to the United States using nuclear weapons two times mm. at the end of World War II. Wow. So when someone invokes Queen Esther, I mean, you, look, you can just pick the phrase because you like the phrase for such a time as this. It's kind of catchy. I like it. You know, like, hey, it, baby, this is our time. Promise Keepers thing? Was that Let's their go. big Promise sure. Keepers oh, tagline or totally. whatever? Like. Totally. Yeah. Be because it's a great one. Like human beings are like, is this our time? Let's go, right? Yeah. No matter what it is, you know, it's it's concert time or it's it's family time or, you know, such a time as this is great phrase. But if you're going to invoke the whole story of the book of Esther, you better recognize that what it was, was a story explaining why they would use governmental power as a queen to attack another group of people and nearly annihilate them. And if you think people who know this story don't get that, so we have a leader who gets to use all kinds of power to accomplish all kinds of things, even if it means the slaughter of all these people. The book of Esther ends in some really dark ways, hmm. rarely talked about. And if all you have is a Sunday school version of the Bible and the book of Esther, Give a full read of that one. Or better yet, get with a Jewish community who when they tell the story of Esther, they do it in role play fashion where you cheer some people and you boo others and they acknowledge the fact that written written into their own narrative is the lack of kindness, justice, mm. and, and goodness. So it's a warning narrative, not a championing narrative. Yeah. Once again, this crowd just picks these phrases and then uses them for their own purposes. Are but you telling me there's... Picking and choosing verses out of context to use for the... <laughs> but That's right. I think what's telling is very rarely in these circles do I hear any leaders compared to Jesus. <laughs> like, they don't say like, oh, he's very Christ-like. Like, right. he's following the example of Jesus. He's a servant. You don't hear much Jesus talk from these supposed Christian... Christians, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because because that's a standard when you raise that one. People are like, well, who, no, nobody can be a Jesus. Who you you heard it in the, in, the, in the thing in the tent, if you could put, put all that together. Oh, we're not, we're not voting for a saint here. Oh, Jesus he's, he's gets not put a into choir another boy. Category. Choir boy, this is just little old us, just doing the best we can here with our fallen uh, selves and just trying to use power over the, over the tops of, of other people. All right, we've got one more, one more clip for you here, and this one comes from Pat Robertson who, by the way, was the person who initiated and invited Donald Trump to run for president, was introducing Donald Trump at Pat Robertson-hosted meetings for years before he ran in 2015. He's the one who recruited him, asked him to run, and put the notion in Trump's head and the notion of a lot of uh, followers, of especially a magazine called Charisma Magazine, that Donald Trump could and should be the guy. Now, look... <laughs> I have a good friend uh, who who holds to all of this stuff, and he's like, well, Doug, you can say what you want, but how do you think Donald Trump won that election? I mean, he shouldn't have. No possible way. 
<laughs> you you go ahead and give me your answer, Mr. You know, political science theorist, and I'll give you a seven mountains answer. God's guy. That's how. That's right? How. So, fair enough. I mean, look, you, you got to give them this. They bet on a guy who shouldn't have won and made no sense, and he was the 45th president of the United States. I can't explain it. I just don't want him to ever be the 47th uh, president of the United States, right? So I'm, I'm willing to. I think Donald Trump was a warning narrative, not dissimilar from the book of Esther as it comes about. So if we wanted to say, do you think he's a Queen Esther? Oh yeah, I think he's a Queen Esther, all right. <laughs> I, think it's a I think it's a warning narrative. All right, so here's that Pat Robertson. Now what Pat's doing is he's about to suggest that this blessing on Donald Trump, that God put on Donald Trump, it's temporal. It's might not last. God can put it on and God can take it off of. So he's mm -hmm. threatening Trump because he believes that Trump is about to not support the Christians in Northern Syria. If you remember when this was all going on and Trump turned a blind eye to the human suffering and turned an eye to the Christians in this, in this part of the world and the religious community freaked out. They're like, if you're God's chosen person, you cannot turn your back on the Christians being slaughtered by the cruel Muslim leadership of, of Assad, right? So that's what's going on. Anti-Muslim support of Christians narrative was not being supported by Trump and they, they turn on him. So here's what, here's what Pat Robertson says. And you'll see again, the thinking that goes into Trump as the selected mandate person, because, you know, Pat Robertson is one of the ultimate seven mountains people. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to say right now, I am absolutely appalled that the United States is going to betray those democratic forces in northern Syria that we possibly are going to allow the Turkish to come in against the Kurds. That Erdogan is a thug. He has taken control of his country as a dictator. He is a strong leader and a, to say he's an ally of America is nonsense. He is in for himself. And the president who allowed Khashoggi to be cut in pieces uh, without any repercussions whatsoever is now allowing the Christians and the Kurds to be massacred by the Turks. And I believe, and I want to say this with great uh, solemnity, the president of the United States is in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he permits this to happen. He's in danger of losing the mandate of heaven if he allows this to happen. There it is. Mm -hmm. The Seven Mountains mandate. Trump has the mandate of heaven. And look, to Pat Robertson's credit, he's at least like, you know, but I'm going to say that's temporary. And if, if you don't follow God's plan, God's going to pull it from you because that's how it works. This theory is very... Um, um, uh, very, uh, very actively built on that on that notion, right? Mm -hmm. This is why the phrase is almost always used in this world. If my people will humble themselves, this passage again from the Jewish text. Yeah. If my people will humble themselves, then I will hear the, hear their prayers and I will heal their land. So there's a conditional deal. There's an if then statement, like you're in seventh grade science class for me, and you're having to write computer quote code and it's all if then statements right in that binary code and in this binary code you have to decide if it's this or if it's that and if this then that so this is the idea in this in this theory trump is temp a temporary leader with the mandate of god mm -hmm. 
And this is a kind of Christian nationalism that I'm telling you is different. It's a different variant. And when you're talking to people and and they're in this world, this is how they're thinking about it. That's really different than some of the other reasons that people justify Christian nationalism, right? Um, a lot of people are into it for white supremacy. A lot of people are into it for anti-communism. Some people are into it because they just think that only some, some groups of people and beliefs should be in charge in the United States. Some people believe this stuff. This is a huge group of people who believe this. And so when they are asked in a survey, do you think the United States has a unique role in God's plan for the world? They're like, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that, yes. Why else would we be here? No other way, you know. So these are ideas that are truly Christian nationalist ideas, but they're funded by a different set of assumptions and by a different set of outcomes. Seven mountains mandate. Yeah. Who would have known? And Laura has pointed out a couple times uh, to understand the current strain of the virus of Christian nationalism. Read the book called Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay. Spot on. Kristen is really great. Uh, she's a friend of ours. And if you listen to the Confronting Christian Nationalism podcast series that we just released, uh, she is in that and featured in that as well because she articulates how we got here so well. So definitely, yeah. Uh, and in fact, in fact, uh, Kristen was at one of our Vote Common Good events in 2020 before her book came out months before a book came out. And um, because of that, we became friends and she was on our podcast right when the book came out. One of the first interviews she did about the book uh, with us. You can find that in the, in the, uh, on the YouTube channel of, our, of all of our interviews and, and uh, in the podcast, or maybe you can go back in the audio podcast and listen to it. So yeah, look, Kristen is a great guide for this and she will walk you through how these ideas have been, have been playing out. I was just with her this last weekend, and she's uh, also talking about some new developments and some new studies that she's doing uh, on how these things are, are playing out. So this is what's helpful about that that comment uh, there from Laura is th this is all developing stuff, right? This is happening in real time. Christian nationalism are ideas that are being tried out. In fact, it was in 2020 at the CPAC convention, the one that just happened the other day, we talked a bunch about on the podcast yesterday, when Charlie Kirk, who's one of these guys who worked with uh, the Jerry Falwell Jr. to start the Center at Liberty University on MAGAism, you know, stuff called the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the Kirk Fall, the, the Fall Kirk Center or something based on his name. He said at CPAC, and just in 2020, Finally, we have a president that understands the seven mountains of cultural influence. Like they're just starting to talk about these things. These ideas that have been brewing around for a while are being articulated and clearly referenced from 2013 through 2020. It's the new variant. You almost call it, you know, if if it was COVID-19 and then the COVID, you know, ver uh, Delta variant, this is like CN 2013, the version that came <laughs> in of Christian nationalism that came alive in 2013. It's like that. And so it, it doesn't get as much attention by the media and by people critiquing it because it seems so new, but it's the most active variant. It's the most contagious. It's the most dangerous mm -hmm. of all of them. It's the culmination in some ways of all of these things. So when you're in conversations with friends, when you're talking to people, uh, look it up. You can do, you know, we're, we're doing this research here. You can read a lot of Seven Mountains Mandate stuff. I mean, you just start Googling this or following people and you will see 
that no one's hiding this. Like this graphic right here, this, this graphic isn't one that we did. This is something the Seven Mountains people believe this put out. Like the, Right, they're having conferences and talking about this at churches and at prayer breakfasts. Yeah, they're not we're, shy we're, about it. We're, it's, it's not like, hey, we discovered something and, and I've, got a, I've got a schema to explain what they're up to. No, this is their schema to explain what they're up to. <laughs> they're like, let me make this clear. Wrote a whole book about this. You know, one uh, of their one of their great uh, one of their most uh, influential leaders says, "I wrote a book about all this stuff, and this is how you're going to bring about God's ultimate agenda for the world, which ultimately bring about the end times." But you get a dozen Christians together, start arguing about the end of the world or end times, and you're going to have 14 different opinions among those dozen people. It's just there's no agreement about how this is all going to go. But the idea that this is the schema to explain God's action for the world, that's what's up. Yeah. So I, I think this is important because I, I, some Christian nationalist critiques don't land where Christian nationalists are living. The critique feels like it's old or feels like it's on a topic they're not even arguing about or it's something they don't even care about. And they think they're in this other story, this other developing narrative of God's action in the world. And it's better to talk with people about the way they view the world than trying right. to convince people about the way you view the world and try to get them to come over to that way. Or it's such an extreme right there, caricature of Christian nationalism that people can easily say, well, that's not us. You know, we're not totally. holing up in the woods in northern Michigan forming a militia to take... <laughs> like, but this is in your average church. Like, this is the innocuous framework from which those, you know, yep. more extreme elements come from. And it's big in black churches and it's big in Hispanic churches. It's not just big in white churches. So when you hear people talk about Christian nationalism as only a white movement, the realization and all the studies that have come out is that it's not attenders of, of black churches hold to these views as well because they hold to it not through a Ku Klux Klan white supremacy narrative. They hold to Christian nationalism through a Seven Mountains Mandate narrative. That, mm -hmm. So what's happening is they're replacing out some of the troubling aspects and some of the small-minded aspects of Christian nationalism that we all argue against with something more more robust and something that's, that feels more attractive and frankly just is more attractive. The other person who's a very strong proponent of this is Representative Lauren Boebert from Colorado. She is big into this. So is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like when they say we're proud Christian nationalists, this is what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so it's good to know what they mean. Now we could do a whole thing. I don't want to, because it's not, I mean, it just makes my brain hurt. We could do a whole thing on how this plays out in the area of media and, and entertainment and, you know, the family and all. But the biggest threat I think currently is the way this is being accepted at governmental levels. And look, if I thought Donald Trump was the only one uh, that they were willing to put this mandate on, no man, a Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Michael Flynn, as I like to joke, all the Mikes and some others, they all are into this stuff. So you're not going to end up with a candidate selected for the Republican Party, whether it's Donald Trump or someone else, and probably for the next decade, who's not deeply embedded in narratives of Seven Mountainism. It is absolutely uh, uh, built into the built into the system. Yeah, Dana has a great question. She asks, uh, do most run-of-the-mill Christian nationalists really understand all this theoretical Seven Mountains mandate stuff, 
or are they just following their local pastors? How would you respond to that? You think the average person, I think the average Christian just thinks like, of course we should have good Christian people in all these areas so yep. that we can you know, make the world a better place. Where does it tip into something more problematic than that? I think, look, uh, I, I've been a pastor for a long time and, and I know that you know, people who were part of my church or churches I've been a part of when somebody else was a pastor. No, we don't, re- people don't really get the stuff at the deep level of the, of the structure makers, but they know it enough. They know it enough to tell the story. So they have a sufficient level of knowledge of the Seven Mountains business without it being full knowledge. So they might listen to all this and be like, wow, I didn't know it had to do with anti-disestablishmentarianism. I didn't know that it had to do with, you know, uh, this comment that that was made by Pat Robertson somewhere else. I, I, I guess that's what I think is that God selects the leaders of the country. I mean, I was in prayer meetings with people who did not want Donald Trump to be a, the, the leader of, uh, you know, elected president on election day with charismatic uh, leaders from the Hispanic church. And their prayers were, as pastors, God, we know you will pick the next leader and we pray that you will pick it to be this person. Like they're blending these things together all the time. So yeah, anytime someone distills an explanation of a worldview and theory, the way we're doing here or the way the people who write books about this stuff do it, the people who hold to it are like, wow, that's a whole lot more than I really knew. Well, you people are really into it. It's like talking to the people who write computer code and not just those of us who use it. You know, Like, <laughs> oh, I knew how to drag and click, but I didn't know about all that but they know it enough. Mm-hmm. They're not uninformed and they're not being tricked. Look, I think they're being misinformed. I think this is not the way God works in the world. I don't think God has an agenda to bring about the conservative uh, policies through <laughs> through government and media and all, but they do. And I think they're wrong about that, but people understand it and believe it at a very deep at a very deep level and a sufficient level of of getting it. This is one of those issues where people believe it more deeply than they understand it. Hmm. And look, we we all know things like that, right? Like that's, that's kind of what makes the world go around is that we're committed to things that we kind of barely understand, whether that's, you know, love, music, art, sports, whatever, you know, we we're into it, totally into it, religion, even though we don't always understand it so deeply. So that's that's where this lands for most people. And I have found that people who hold to these views are benefited when you help them understand more about the very beliefs they have. And then they get to say like, oh, didn't know I, I didn't know about that. Okay, I'm not not as comfortable with that. <laughs> you know, I've, <laughs> I've shared this with some people who, who believe these views. And when they hear the three clips that we played, they're like, oh, okay, that's a little, that's a little right. on the nose. I'm not quite there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, in principle, I agree, but I wouldn't say it that way. Maybe they misspoke. Maybe that you know, you hear the rationalizations and explanations for why it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, good. But stuff. look, this brings up all kinds of questions, like what does it mean for the God to be active in the world? What does it mean for God to bless some things mm-hmm. and others? You know, be a blessing and do a blessing and have a blessed day and all that. Like it just invokes all of these questions for us about how we're supposed to be living in the world. So yeah, we need to think about to- it and talk about it and. Figure it out together. And if this podcast was too intense and you want to break it down to some smaller pieces where we don't spend an hour on just this one, but this is a <laughs> uh, you know a 10-minute notion, but there's a bunch of others, 
we would commend to you with all solemnity the uh, <laughs> confronting the confronting Christian nationalism podcast that's out and a new episode drops Friday. Oh, and yeah. if you want to watch that entire training on our YouTube channel, you can find the entire training that much of the confronting Christian nationalism material comes from. You can watch it uh, live performed in, out of uh, an event we did in Wisconsin uh, right, right there on the website if you want to. And we'll be back tomorrow with uh, astrophysicist Paul Wallace to talk about uh, something a little you know, lighter, like the stars and <laughs> galaxies and uh, how you old think this the universe is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start talking about quirks and black holes. But hey, if this one gives your master and Professor Paul Wallace <laughs> is a treat. So join us for yeah. for that uh, regular installment. If this one gets your blood pressure up tomorrow will just make your brain explode so yeah it's great it's great so you, what, how, how do you want to go with a heart explosion or with a head explosion because we're, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll give you what you need around here yep and thanks uh, thanks for being a part of all this if you're not on our email list go over to votecommongood.com get on there we'll invite you to all the stuff we're up to and doing whether that's in person or online or all the other places and curriculums and uh, bike rides and immigration work and anti-death penalty work all kinds of stuff so find it all over there votecommongood.com Yep, and thanks for hanging with us in the chat. Uh, very active chat, so if we didn't get to comment to you, uh, sorry about that. I do want to bring up one uh, post from from William. Uh, Greetings from Africa, Uganda, here at the orphanage home. Please pray for us uh, to get anything to eat now. It's two days without food. Uh, wow. William, our hearts go out to you. Uh, please message us, and if there's anything we can do to help, we'll for sure be praying and thinking of you there. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, the United States isn't the only place where Christian nationalism is raging. It's raging in Uganda, actually. Mm-hmm. And it has a lot to do with how resources are distributed in that country. And the things that are happening there that are heartbreaking are deeply connected to some of these same narratives. So um, it's the impact is real. Yeah. But until, right. uh, until we'll tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care. Okay. Bye.